Welcome. It has been three weeks since I stood up here talking to you guys, and in the meantime, we've had Crystal Morris come and speak, and then we had Josh the last two weeks, and my, my parents were here last week, and uh, they commented on how much they appreciated Josh. In fact, my mom, my own mother, who faithfully listens to all these messages and cringes at some of the stories I tell, but she prefers Josh over me. I know. In unrelated news, uh, Josh will not be speaking for a little while. <laughs> it's not a competition, but uh, you do want to make sure that, you know, you're not the worst one speaking. And so, you know, next week we'll have someone a little lower than me speak. So where's Greg? Where's Greg? There he is. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. In, in my defense, though, uh, I am not a, a gifted, born communicator like Josh is. I mean, think about it this way. It's his business. It's his livelihood to be in the communication business. For me, I am a born and trained engineer. And so communication is not our strong suit uh, in, at the best of times. So I don't have that as a natural gifting. However, I do have an advantage as, as an engineer that I can be able to look at a problem and try to break it down into its first principles, try to break down the issue to what's really going on in there. And I think that's, that's really helped me in, the, in my counseling with people is taking a complex issue and trying to break it down to what's really going on and then being able to find out a way forward, a, way, a solution uh, from, from those basic elements. So what do I mean by first principles? Well, here's an example we've got up on the screen here. If you were to draw Mickey Mouse, basically Mickey Mouse is just a collection of circles and lines. And so this is how they've kind of constructed it. You draw a big circle for the head and then you divide it up and then you add the nose and you start drawing some of the, what they're calling the mask. And so you, you just, it's just basically circles and lines put together and then suddenly you get Mickey Mouse. So for me, when I look at that and I see the, the final product, I'm like, how would everyone, anyone ever draw that? It's just these basic principles of that. Does that kind of make sense? So, so that's what we're going to try to understand this morning as we come back to now our, our studies in Ephesians. We're into chapter two for the first time. And, and we come across this, this verse that's a simple verse, but really I think speaks to the basic principles in which we're, we're dealing with or, or what we're facing with. And so Ephesians 2 and verse 1, very simply it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Simple verse. We're going to look at really one word this morning. We're going to look at this idea of being dead. We're going to talk about death this morning. Aren't you excited you came? I mean... No wonder my mom likes Josh better than me, right? So, but uh, we're going to look at, try to understand what does it mean to, to be dead? It's, it's bigger than just what we typically refer to as death. Because really what, what, um, what Paul's referring to is, is that while we were being dead, while we're in this state of death, and so what does that mean? What does that look like? So that's what we're going to kind of examine uh, this morning. So let's have a, a quick prayer. Father, this is such a critical aspect of the gospel, of the truth. And so we want to understand what that means, what that looks like. And so, Lord, would you open up our eyes, open up our minds, help us to understand that, help us to really appreciate what it is that you've come to rescue us from. And we're looking forward to what you're going to do. 
We're trusting you, Jesus, as best we know how. In your name we pray, amen. So to understand the first principles, I think what's really going to be helpful is to understand the, what comprises or what goes into a, a single person. And we're going to kind of move a little bit quickly here this morning, uh, mainly because what I'm sharing here is what I often share in the counseling. And so what I'm going to try and do is take what I normally take about an hour and 10 minutes and cram it into whatever time it takes. So don't look at the clock. Um, we'll just keep going. But 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23, Paul writes this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we've got Paul. He says, the God of peace. The, the, I can't help but think Paul being Jewish, when he thinks of the God of peace, he's really thinking of the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is often translated as peace, but it's much bigger than peace. It means to be made whole, to be, to be made, yes, healthy and, and yes, peace, but there's this, this wholeness to it. And so may the God who makes us whole sanctify you. And then he goes and he lists the specific elements of that, your spirit and your soul and your body. And so what we can see here in this verse is that there's really these three major components that go into a person, spirit, soul, and body. And so we have a, a diagram that we're going to throw up here that kind of simplifies this, right? So we've got these three elements there, spirit, soul, and body. And... Um, <clears throat> This is, again, it's an oversimplification because the reality is we're trying to take a single person and put them on a diagram and we're far more complex, far more nuanced than any diagram would ever show. But I think it's going to give us a general outline, a general understanding to work from. So some people say, well, spirit and soul, aren't they kind of one and the same? Aren't they, aren't they really just two words describing the same object like car and automobile? And, and that's how a lot of people outside the church, but even inside the church have viewed it. Well, if that's the case, then we got a couple problems. Number one is soul and spirit are, in fact, interchangeable. That would imply that Paul and the Holy Spirit have a stuttering problem, right? Because the verse we looked at in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 was very specific, your spirit, your soul, and your body. So there's these three unique aspects to it. Plus, the writer of Hebrews in 4 and verse 12 says that there's a division between soul and spirit. So if they're one and the same, then you couldn't really divide them. So they are, in fact, different. So how do we understand that? Well, we're not going to get into all the nuances this morning. But basically, what I want you to see about the Spirit, the Spirit is the core of who you and I are. It's the very nature of us. It's a, the very essence of our identity. And the reason I say that is because if you read through the Genesis account, God there says, let us make man in our own image. Well, think about for a moment, what kind of a being is God? He's a spiritual being, right? We learn about that in John chapter 4. God is spirit. So if God's a spiritual being and he's made you and I in his image, then which of these two statements better reflects or better describes what we are? Are we human beings having spiritual experiences or are we spiritual beings having human experiences? It's the latter. Right, But we don't tend to think or see ourselves that way. We tend to see ourselves as human beings going through life, every so often having an encounter with God, but for the most part trying to deal with life with our own human resources. But if I can begin to see myself as a spiritual being, I have the same human issues, same human problems, but now i got a whole other set of resources, spiritual resources, to deal with those things. 
So we need to begin to change our thinking. We're, we're more than just this body. We're spiritual beings. That's who we are at the core. That's, that's what really defines us, not our behavior, not what we look like, not our age or our shape or our size or anything like that, but rather who we are as a spiritual being. That's the core of who we are. Well, let's contrast that with the soul then. And the soul really is our personality. It's your, it's your mind. It's your thinker. It's your emotions or your feeler or it's your will, it's your chooser. Those really go into making up your soul. And so every one of us has a unique soul, a unique personality. We all think a little bit differently. We all have different kinds of feelings and preferences and, and we all have make different kinds of choices and so forth. And so you have a soul, but that doesn't even define who you are. It's not good to know that you're more than what you think. You're more than what you feel. You're more than what you choose. But all of that goes into your soul, and it's through that soul that you and I get to know one another. We get to understand a little bit. I get to know Craig based on some of the choices he's made or, or, or what he likes to do and the hobbies and so forth, and that he's a Leaf fan, and so I know we can commiserate with one another, right? So, so I get to know him that way, and that's all through his soul, which leads us to the last part of us, which is the body. And the body is the least important part of who we are. Now, did I say it's unimportant? No, it's the least important part of us. And that's good news for someone like Eldon. I won't explain why, right? I'll let you infer why I say that, but it's not why you think, right? But we're more than just a body. The body simply is your mobile home. It's what houses you and allows you and I to live and operate here on planet Earth, right? Because what we are as a spirit, we have this soul and we simply reside in this body. So if your body's your mobile home, I'm not sure if that makes us trailer trash or not, but I'll let you figure that over lunch, okay? So those are the three parts, spirit, soul, and body, the core of us being who we are in our spirit. Does that make sense? And it, and it tells us here, we can even see these three parts in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where God formed man from the dust of the ground. That was the body that he's referring to. And he breathed into him the breath of life. The word there for breath is the same word for spirit. So God breathed into man a spirit. And he became a living being, or literally, the word is a living soul. So even in there, we can see that's how God created Adam and created Eve. And he placed them in this garden of Eden. Eden literally translates to paradise. That's what they were. That's what they were created for. Now, let me ask you this question. In this paradise, did Adam and Eve have any needs? What do you think? Yes, I think they did. But were they ever in need? See, there's a difference between having a need and being in need, right? So for example, right now, how many of us, we have a need for warmth? How many of us are in need of warmth? It's pretty cold in here, right? Let's do another one that's a little bit better. How many people have a need for oxygen? All hands go up, right? How many people are in need of oxygen? Do we start doing CPR on you and call 911? We don't need to do that, right? Because unlike the heat, there is lots of air in this room, right? And so we're not in need of air. It's amply supplied, but we still have a need. Does that make sense? So Adam and Eve, they had needs, but they weren't in need. What do I mean by that? Well, God was supplying all those needs. But I think that begs the question, well, what were their needs? 
And so we're going to try to examine this a little bit. And that's why we started with those three parts, spirit, soul, and body, because we want to, rather than just kind of do it in a scattershot kind of way, I want to see if we can understand what are the basic elements that go into these aspects, these different parts of us that we need. So we're going to start with the body because the body is the part we understand the best. So go ahead, shout out some needs that you think of for the body that we have. Food. I love how everyone starts with food, right? Men or women, it's not just the guy thing. We all think with our stomachs, right? So food, that's a big one. What's another one? Water. Water is a big one. Air. That's the one everyone forgets, even though it's the most important. Oh, you're cheating? Oh, only one honest person in the group. Jim, you get to sit in the front row. The rest of you are going to stay after class. Okay, put it back up there then. There it is. Food, water, and even the order was there. My goodness. My goodness. Shelter. Oh, I've got an idea. Let's say shelter. Warmth. Yeah. Rest, exercise. Okay, so those are the basic needs of the human body, right? And, 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 and so that's what we all need. Does that make sense? Well, let's think about the, the soul now, right? The soul's getting a little bit trickier. So we're going we're gonna to throw it up there. We're not even going to bother anymore, right? So go ahead and throw the, the needs up for the soul. So what do we need in our mind? Our, our mind is where we need truth. Our mind's where we need wisdom, right? Because that's where we store information. That's where we store our facts. So when you're driving a car, you need to know the rules of the road. You need to know that red light means, green light means, yellow light means speed up, right? <laughs> What does yellow light actually mean? It actually, a lot of people say slow down. It actually, it doesn't even mean caution. It means stop unless you can't and then proceed with caution. At least that's what the nice police officer told me one time, but that's a different story, okay? So, so what does yellow light mean? It means stop unless you can't. Now, I use that example on purpose, though, because in our mind is where our facts are stored, and some of those facts are accurate, and some of them are not so accurate. The problem is they're not labeled differently in our mind. It's not like in one side of our mind with blue tags are all the accurate facts that we believe, and on the other side of our mind with orange tags are all the inaccurate facts we believe, and we recognize them as such. That's not it. Instead, what we believe, we believe to be true, whether it's true or not. And so all of us, to some degree, have some faulty thinking, some, some things, some facts that we're believing that aren't accurate, that aren't true. But all those beliefs there, that they're stored in, in, our, um, in our mind. Does that make sense? Now, I also like to think of our mind as a bit like an iceberg. And when you think about an iceberg, and there might be one kind of floating by in the, in the drinking fountain, I think, but if you think about an iceberg, there's what you see above the surface is about 10% of the iceberg, and the below the surface is 90%. And I think our mind works in a similar way. There's what we might call above the surface or the conscious mind. That's the part of our mind that I'm hopefully engaging in with you right now as I'm talking and asking you questions. You're hopefully engaged in your conscious mind. But then there's a part that's below the surface, the subconscious mind. And some would say, well, it's subconscious. It's out of sight, out of mind, and therefore it's dormant. But that's not the case. It's not how it works. In the subconscious is where all of our beliefs are stored. And those beliefs are influencing the conscious mind, whether we recognize it or not. Let me illustrate. Suppose there's a young teenage girl, and she struggles with self-esteem issues, like a lot of young people do. And it's her birthday. 
And her mom says to her, well, let's, let's take you to the mall and we'll go buy you something nice for your birthday. And so they go and they're walking up and down the aisles and looking at window shopping and everything. And then they walk by the food court and this young girl, she looks across and sees her two best friends sitting at a table laughing, sharing some french fries and a drink together. And she thinks, there are my two best friends and they didn't invite me out. Now she's going to interpret, interpret that. She's going to begin to, to try to figure out, well, what does that mean? Well, they probably didn't invite me out because they don't actually like me. They're not really my friends. They don't like hanging out with me. Man, I should have known it. I was stupid to think that anyone would be my friend. I'm an idiot. I'm dumb. I can't trust people anymore. Now, she's not thinking all those thoughts going, well, because I have self-esteem issues, therefore. Rather, her low self-esteem is influencing that conscious part of her mind without her even aware of it. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on in our mind. That's what's going on in, 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 the, in our thinker. In our will, that's where we need discernment. And I like to define discernment as the ability to make a good choice. So for example, we're driving that car and that green light turns yellow. And what does yellow light mean now? You're learning something, right? Save you a bunch of fines and tickets. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Right? So you see that green light and it turns yellow. And now you got to make a choice. Do I stop or do I keep going with caution? Well, that choice is going to be based on a number of factors. What are the road conditions like? Is there a car in front of me stopping? How fast am I going? How far away am I from the red light? How late am I? <laughs> How many other red lights have I been stuck behind that today? Is there a cop around or a red light camera, right? There's a number of factors going on to that decision. And I'm going to, based on all those factors, I'm going to make a hopefully wise or good choice to either stop or go through safely, right? So that's discernment. And that's what's going on in our will. And then finally, we have our emotions. And our emotions, what we need there, we need things like peace. And I say that because think about your emotions, your feeler on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is calm, cool, and collected, everything's chill, and then 10 is ready to explode. It could be with anxiety, it could be with anger, it could be with all kinds of different things. Well, what are the odds of us making good choices when our emotions are really high? Not really good. In fact, what's the counsel we often give other people when their emotions are so high? Take a moment. Take some, you know, take some deep breaths. Allow those emotions to begin to kind of filter back down so you can think better. Because with all that emotional intensity, it becomes emotional interference and your mind isn't working well and your discernment isn't working very well. And so we need things like peace in our, in our emotions. We need things like hope and joy. Things that often I think we don't recognize the importance of them until they're gone. And we need things like patience, especially when you're dealing with little kids or a teacher <laughs> and you got lots of little kids, right? So we need things like patience and we need things like love for others. Now, it's very specific here. I didn't just say love. I said what we need is a love for others. So is that love coming in or love going out? It's a love going out. That's a love for my family. It's a love for my beautiful bride. It's, it's a love for my, my friends. It's a love for my coworkers. It's a love even for my enemies. I need a love for those people. Well, in order to give that love to them, I have to have love coming in first, right? 
Well, that love coming to me, though, is to me. And therefore, it's going to be a function of more than just my soul. It's going to be a function of my spirit. So let's go ahead and throw the needs up of the spirit. In my spirit, I need to be loved. I need to be accepted. I need to know that I'm approved. I need to know that I have worth and value and significance. I need to know that I belong somewhere. And I need all of it to be secure which means that it's never changing. It's not I'm loved when or I'm loved if or I'm loved as long as. I'm just flat out loved. That's what I need in my spirit. Does that make sense? All right. Let's go a little bit deeper in all this, though. Right? We talked about needs, but I want you to see that it's more than just a need. See, what happens to the body if I take any of these away for an extended period of time? If I take air away from someone for 10 minutes, what happens? They're dead. If I take water away from someone for 10 days, what happens? If I take food away from a guy for 10 hours, I mean, no, 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 10 weeks, 10 weeks, what happens? Dead. The human body, I'm told, can go six weeks without food, depending on the shape going into it. Does that mean for five weeks and six days, everything's great, and then suddenly on day 42, falls down dead? No. We are experiencing death the whole time until it culminates in what we refer to as death. See, what I want you to begin to think and see here is death is not just this finality where everything stops working. Death is something you can experience even though you're still very much alive. So in the case of, of hunger, of food being taken away, you know, the moment you take that food away, you know, you stop eating, now you start getting hunger pains. That's, that's the first signs of death. And if it goes on long enough now, what's going to begin to happen is your body's not going to produce the right kind of nutrients. You're going to feel lethargic and tired and hangry. That's experiencing death. And then eventually it begins to shut down, eat away at the muscles and the, and the organs, and then it shuts down everything, and then the whole body culminates in death, but you were experiencing death the whole time. Some of you are experiencing death right now because of the absence of heat, right? It's just a little bit, but if it goes on long enough, hypothermia sets in and you would die. But there's an experience of death. So what I want you to see is this is not just what the body needs, it's life to the body. Does that make sense? Well, if that's life to the body, then what do you think those needs to the soul and needs to the spirit is? It's life to the soul and it's life to the spirit. Right? So, because the absence of those things, you take it away and it's going to experience death. So we're going to look at what that means in, in, in a few minutes here, but I want you to begin to see it's not just nice to have, it's a necessity to have. It's life for us. Now, who was the source of all this? It was God, right? So we got God up there in that, uh, in that triangle and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in the middle there, I put the word life or zoe, which is the Greek word for life. It's not just a plug for my daughter. It's the Greek word for life. It's the life of God. And one of the things that's unique about God, one of the things that makes God God is that he has life in himself. We learn about that in John chapter 5 which means that he's the only source of life. If I go looking for life anywhere else, will I find it? No, not at all. 
He's the only game in town. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Shoppers Drug Mart, they have their own brand of, of product, right? Whether it be, maybe it's shampoo or, or toothpaste or whatever. What is the name? Anyone know the name of the Shoppers Drug Mart brand? Life brand. Ironically, I'll let you figure out why I chose them, right? So the life brand comes from Shoppers Drug Mart. If I want authentic life brand merchandise, will I find it at Walmart? No. It might be great value. It might be some cheap knockoff like Live Brand or something like that, but it is not real, authentic life brand. In the same way, there's only one game in town. There's only one source in town for true, authentic life, and that's God. If I go looking for life anywhere else, what will I find? I'll only find death, not life, because he's the only source of all that. Well, now we can understand more of what God was saying to them in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. God there, he gives them a command. And, and there were many trees in the garden, but two trees in particular. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says to them, eat freely from any of the trees except for one tree. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat of that one tree, you will surely get a stomachache. No you will surely die. All right, let's, let's understand this a little bit here. Let's back up and pause for a moment and think, first off, why would God put a tree that could cause death in the garden? I mean, think about it, especially you parents, right? When you had little kids running around, did you kind of like scatter some knives around the house and say, okay, little Timmy, don't play with the knife because you're going to die. I mean, really, that's... That's, that's bad parenting. In case you're not sure, let's just be clear. That's bad parenting, right? So nobody in their right mind, hopefully, hopefully, would do that, right? So why would God do that? Is God just a bad parent? No, it's because choice. Love demands a choice, right? It's a, it's a necessity. It's a requirement. And so God, he didn't have to make us. He chose to make us. He chose man. He chose Adam and Eve. He chose you and I. That was his declaration of saying, I want you. I want a Stephanie. That's why I made her. The question is, will man choose me? So he puts these two trees in the garden. And really, it had nothing to do with the trees. It could have been two chairs. It could have been two rivers, two sweaters, two hockey teams, right? All, clearly, the tree of life is a maple leaf, although I'm not sure there's much life in there right now. But, but there's, you could have done two of anything. Right? And he says, just pick. And if you choose the tree of life, you're choosing me to be your life, to supply life to you. But if you choose the tree of the knowledge of, notice, it's the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just the evil tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will surely die. Now he's giving them a warning. That warning, is it a consequence or a punishment? It's a consequence. Please understand, there's a big difference between the two. A, a punishment is something that is applied after the fact. It's something that's imposed after the fact. That's what a punishment is. But a consequence, a consequence is something that's inherent to the act. So God's not saying to Adam and Eve, listen, if you betray me, if you go against me, I'm going to be so angry and so disappointed, I'm going to strike you down. It's not what he's saying. He's warning them, saying, hey, Adam, 
listen, this is really important, son. You can eat any tree. You can make any choices. You're free. But understand, there's consequences to your choice. And here's the consequence. If you choose to find life on your own terms, if you choose to go it alone, you're not going to find life. I guarantee you're going to find death. And that choice, that consequence is inherent to the choice. Does that make sense? Well, sadly, they didn't listen, right? Eve was deceived. Adam disobeyed. Why? Well, because Satan shows up and he, dis- he deceives them. The enemy, the serpent. Now think for a moment now. Understand a little bit of what, what's going on here. What his job description is. What his mission statement is. In John 10.10, 10, it says the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his modus operandi, right? That is his job description. That's what he's trying to do. Notice, it's not just coming, <clears throat> the thief didn't come to make you sin. That wasn't what he was after. Yes, he wants you to sin, but because he knows that sin will lead to death. That's what he's after. So he's come, and he deceives Eve. Adam disobeys, and they eat of this tree of knowledge, good and evil. And what happens? Well, just like what God promised, they experience death. How do we know? Well, let's take a look at what happened. Let's examine for a moment their reaction, right? Adam and Eve, they are both naked and unashamed, it says in the garden. They had no fears until they eat of that tree, eat of the fruit of that, and their eyes are open and they're naked. And what's the first thing they do? They hide. From who? God comes later. They first hide from each other. Now think about that for a moment. Was it wrong for Adam and Eve to hide from each other? Was it wrong for Adam and Eve to see each other? Sorry, let me back up. Was it wrong for Adam and Eve to see each other naked? No. Husband and wife, married. Something to be enjoyed and celebrated and experienced. And yet, it was no longer okay. Well, why not? Well, before, next slide here. Before, they knew that they were loved and they were accepted and they were secure. But that was now gone. Because when they chose to go find life on their own terms, they were no longer connected to the source of life. They're no longer shopping at at Shoppers Drug Mart. They're now at Walmart. And they're experiencing death now for the first time. So no longer that confidence and that sense of self-worth and significance and security, it's all gone. And so Adam is experiencing unloved and rejected and worthlessness and insecurity and insignificance and alone. And so he's looking at Eve and he's thinking, am I okay? Am I okay with her? Am I strong enough? Am I man enough? Am I big enough? Am I powerful enough? What's she going to do if if she sees parts of me that I don't think are good enough? Well, clearly she'd reject me because I'm rejecting me. How could she ever love and accept me? I am now unlovable because if she knew what I knew, She'd want nothing to do with me. Enter shame. And so Adam, he sews together a fig leaf to hide from Eve. And Eve's looking at Adam and she's going through all the same stuff. Am I pretty enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I okay with him? Well, I see all the flaws. 
There's no way he's going to want to be with me. I'm never going to be good enough. And so she sews together a fig leaf. And mankind now, is they put on their first masks. They're hiding for fear of rejection that they already perceive on themselves. Now God shows up on the scene. No fig leaf's going to cut it now. So now they go jump behind the bushes. And God coaxes them out. He says, Adam, what's going on? Where were you? We were hiding. Why were you hiding? Because we were afraid. See, look at their soul now. And their soul, all that peace is gone. All that hope and joy is gone. All that patience is gone. Now there's frustration. There's anxiety. There's dismay and despair. That bitterness and selfishness. Because what does Adam say? Who told you you're naked? What does Adam do? That woman that you gave me, God, just so we're clear, right? I'm throwing Eve and you under the bus to protect myself. Why? Because of all that fear. So you see in the poor choices he's making, the lies he's beginning to believe about himself. And so he's experiencing death, not just in his spirit, not just in his soul, but now even in his body. Because now his body's beginning to wear down. Again, it's slow, right? It's sort of like, you know, you're 12 hours since eating. There's still a lot in you still, but you're beginning to experience death in your body. Well, that's what's beginning to happen in Adam and Eve. They're beginning to, now the toil and the pain and the illness and the sickness that will eventually culminate in what we refer to as death many, 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 many years later, but they're beginning to experience death just as God promised. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. See, I've heard that term and I've heard that taught from many preachers and so forth. And they've said, well, God spared them from that death. No, he didn't. He gave them the consequences. He allowed the consequences of their choice. And so that's what death looks like. Death in their spirit that sense of being unloved and rejected and not good enough. Death in their soul. Death in their body. That's what they're experiencing. And what this tells us is, this is why we need life. Again, think about what Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that you might have life. The issue with our gospel, please, please understand the gospel is much more than just a forgiveness of sins so you can go to heaven one day. And in the meantime, keep your nose clean. That is not the gospel. That is a shallow, shallow understanding of the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to do. The gospel is all about death and life. And what we see in this world is a bunch of dead men walking. A bunch of dead people who are desperate for life, that they're biting and attacking and clawing each other for that life. I mean, it, it, you don't have to watch the news very long. Every week, there's just another example, another illustration of how the world attacks one another, trying to beat down one in order to lift, them up, lift themselves up higher, hoping that they'll find value and worth from it. But it won't work. Because remember, there's only one game in town. There's only one place to find life, and that's Jesus Christ. And so here in this passage that we're looking at in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, what Paul was saying to them is, is literally, 
you arrived here on, uh, you are being dead, I think is one literal translation of that verse. That when you and I show up here on planet Earth, we show up being dead, dead men walking. This is our experience. And so we're desperate for life. And we're hoping other people will be that to us. Maybe my job or my, my reputation or my, my ministry or certain experiences, that will fill me up. But it's never quite enough. So I always need more. Always got to keep doing it again and again, hoping that I can find something. And it's sort of like eating Taco Bell, thinking it's going to nourish you. I mean, meat in a tube, folks. Guys, come on. That should really be our clue, right? We need Jesus. We need Jesus to be the life to us. Now, we're going to unpack this more as we go on in this passage, because really, verse 1 is just the start of this wonderful passage. The first 10 verses of this chapter are just beautiful. Such an incredible explanation and, and uh, display of what it means to be saved, what God has done and what he's given to us. And so we're going to unpack all that in the weeks ahead. But I don't want to leave us here just talking about death because that's kind of morbid, right? So we're going to try to understand. I'm going to give you an illustration, and then we're going to kind of unpack that in the weeks ahead. But here's an illustration, I think, of what God has done that you and I could have life. I want you to imagine in this little town, there's a homeless guy. Why he's homeless, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe he's a, a soldier returning from war and he's struggling with PTSD and that's what's going on. Uh, maybe, maybe he's sort of made some bad choices and he's down on his luck now as a result of that. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe things are done to him and he never quite recovered from that. Whatever the story is, he's homeless. He's got no place to live. He's got no job. So what does he do to survive? What does he do when he needs money? What does he do when he needs food? What does he do? Begs, borrows, steals, right? That's his whole life job description now. How am I going to survive? Do whatever it takes. Beg, borrow, and steal. So he's sitting there on his regular corner this morning, and he's doing what he does, right? He's begging for money, hoping that some people will throw some money into his little hat or, or whatever so he can then go and grab some meat and maybe get a new pair of boots or something like that. Well, in comes to town, and in comes to the town, the richest guy. This guy's got more money than he knows what to do with. He's got more money coming in that day than he knows what to do with. And he sees this homeless guy. We'll call him Bob. And he sees Bob there. And he says, oh, Bob, man, you're telling your luck. And I'm going to help him out. And he's going in to pull out his wallet to give him some money like he's done every time he's seen him. And then he stops. And he thinks, you know what? I do this every time. No matter how many times I throw money at him, Bob's still here. Still in the same corner. I want to I do something for Bob to make sure that he never struggles ever again. I know exactly what to do. Makes a sharp left turn, walks across the street, goes into the bank that he owns, richest guy in town. And he sees the bank manager and he says, see Bob over there? And the manager's like, oh yeah, poor Bob. The guy's struggling, down on his luck. I try and help him out from time to time. And the rich man says, yeah, me too, but... I want to do something different today. I want to do something today so that he never has to struggle again. I want to add Bob to all of my accounts. I want him to have access to all of my money. Well, the bank manager at that point is going, I wish I was Bob. 
are you sure you want to do that? And the rich guy says, oh, yeah, yeah. I have no problem because I got more money coming in today than Bob and I can spend together in a lifetime. I'm not worried about it. I want to add Bob to all of my accounts. Bank manager says, okay, it's your money. You can do what you want with it. They fill out all the forms, sign it. The bank manager then gives a card, a bank card, to the rich man for Bob. Rich guy walks out of the bank, crosses the street, and he sees Bob there, and he says, Bob, I know you've been struggling, and I don't want you to ever struggle again, so I've added you to all my accounts. Here's a card for you, and you can use it to buy whatever you need. There's no limit. Go get what you need. I got a meeting to run to, so I'm going to go do that, and then I'll be back, and I'll explain more. So off goes the rich guy, and now Bob's sitting there looking at the card. And he's got a few different responses that are possible. One response might be to look at it and go, what a joke. This is a fairy tale. This is a myth. Nobody, nobody would ever do this. This is just make-believe. I don't believe it. And he tosses the card. That's one possible response. Another response would be to look at it and go, okay, he's a good guy. He's helped me out. He's throwing me some money. But there is no way. He's given me access to all of his money. What he's probably done is he's probably opened up an account and he's probably put a few hundred dollars in there, maybe $500. That's, that's pretty generous. So this will be my in case of emergency. This is when the beg, borrow, seal doesn't work anymore and I'm really, really desperate. Then I will use this card. But this is like when everything else fails and he puts the card in his pocket. Or maybe he's looking at it and like... <clears throat> I don't know how to use this. Pin? What's the pin again? I, I don't remember. I, I just don't know how to. I'm not sure. And again, he puts the card in his pocket. Well, now Bob's hungry. He needs some food. So what does he do? Goes back to what he knows. Begs, borrows, and steals. Do you, do you see what he's done here? He is now the richest guy in town. And he's begging from everyone else. That's our story. That's my story. That's your story. See, we were the homeless person. We had nothing. And the only way we could survive was to beg, borrow, and steal. And then along comes Jesus. And he gave us the greatest offer. He literally added us to all of his accounts. We are joint heirs with him. Everything that is his is now ours. He basically came up to us and said, Mi casa su casa. Right? It's yours. I give it to you. Everything. Now, the unbeliever was given the same offer, and what do they do? They toss the card. They reject it. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. It's not real. But you and I accepted it. We said, thank you. We received this. But maybe we didn't know how grand it really is. Maybe we just saw it as something to use in case of emergency. When everything else fails, when all my methods and all my attempts and everything else didn't work, I've now come, it's come down to this, all I've got left is to pray. How many of us have said that before? As if that's like, oh, case of emergency, break glass, prayer. Right? And so that's how we've kind of treated God. I've tried everything I can in my strength. And then when it's failed, okay, now I'll trust God. Because he's got a little bit of emergency set aside for me. Or maybe I'm looking at him like, I just, I know I got this life. 
I just don't know how to access it. I didn't know how to use it. I, don't, I know it's bigger than what I've got, but I just don't know how to tap into it. And basically, we got Jesus sitting in our pocket, and we're hungry, we're lonely, we're feeling rejected, beat up, abused, neglected, unworthy and insignificant and unsafe. And we start thinking, what do I need to do now to protect myself? Well, I'll beg, borrow, and steal. And I go back to all my methods. Isolate myself, put up walls, boundaries that are so thick no one can get to me. Hide, put on the masks, just like my forefathers Adam and Eve did. Not realizing what I possess, what I have access to in the person of Jesus Christ. We have everything we need for life and godliness. He came that we'd have life and have it abundantly today, not in the sweet by and by that awaits, but right here, right now. And what we're going to do in the weeks ahead, and really, as long as we're running here, is try to unpack how do I tap into that life? How do I let that life satisfy all of my needs? How do I let Jesus be the source of my love? Not my beautiful bride, not my beautiful kids, not my beautiful friends, and Marco. But how do I let Jesus do that for me? Maybe he's going to use all of you, but it's got to come from Jesus. How do I let Jesus be my wisdom and my peace and my patience and my hope and my joy? How do I let Jesus provide life to me? That's what we want to do. We want to experience life abundantly in the midst of a sin-cursed world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible gift you've offered to us. You've added us to your accounts. You've come to rescue us from death that we could walk and experience life in you. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for your provision for us. We just ask for one thing now. We ask for heat. In your name we pray, amen.